Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Hold tight as we ride the beat in the lub and dub of science. I'm Patrick Ruby. On this edition we'll feature wired beds, rat studs and sacrificial goats. And on that note, here's Ian Wolfe. So Ian, tell us about these sacrificial goats. Well, the UK Ministry of Defence is set to end its goat experiments. For several decades, goats have had the bends, or decompression sickness, induced in them by the Navy to test the safety of submarines. The animals were used to see what the likely risk of the bends would be following escape from a submarine at varying depths under the water. The information would help crews judge whether it would be safer to abandon a submarine in trouble or wait to be rescued. Over 400 tests were carried out between 2000 and 2007 before they were stopped. The bends is an often deadly effect of nitrogen bubbles in the bloodstream. It's a sickness caused when divers rise to the surface too quickly. It can result in a loss of balance and breathing difficulties, and the most serious cases, paralysis and death. During the Ministry of Defence tests, goats were subject to various pressures in a hyperbaric chamber. The military stated the goats breathe in a very similar way to humans, so they were good substitute humans for these experiments. However, a review argued that the submarine emergencies they were modelling were very unlikely, so they stopped the tests. The Dr. Hadwin Trust for the Humane Treatment of Animals in Medical Research has stated that it's regrettable that the military should hurt people, but totally unethical that they should also hurt animals. Of course, in Goat Lab USA, they try to kill the goats by staring at them. And I'd always been told that the goat locker on a submarine was just the submarine chief's quarters. That's pretty incredible. 4,000 goats used, was it up until 2007? 400 experiments. They don't say how many goats. 400 experiments. They don't, oh my gosh. When you tell me about that, it reminds me a bit of in the 19th century, how they had those canaries that they took down into the mines to test to see if the air was breathable or if there was any uh, potentially dangerous gas in the air that might lead to an explosion. As an early warning system? Yes, as an early warning system. And the theory was that if the canary died, then it meant that there was a potential uh, dangerous situation with the gas in the particular mine shaft and everyone would get out. But it seems a little extreme to sort of extrapolate that a goat that collapses might mean there's a potentially bad situation with the bends. Not only that, but if you've got a goat in your goat locker, and as I say, my understanding is that's not usually what the goat locker is used for, but if you did have a goat in your goat locker, then if your goat fell over, you don't want to immediately escape because if the goat's got the bends, then it's early warning is that you might have it and going straight to the surface is the last thing you want to do. Yeah, you want exactly. to do it slowly. Yeah, that's, that's what they do in diving, is, um, isn't it? When, uh, when people have the bends and they're going for a dive, the idea is to gradually go back up to the surface. Otherwise, you get the nitrogen bubbles in your blood, which, um, which cause all the problems in the bends. Exactly. However, in this case, it seems they probably didn't, well, at least what they're saying, they didn't actually put the goats in the submarines. They just put them in high-pressure hyperbaric chambers and made them pretend they were going under the water. 
Oh gosh, poor goats. And what's this other story you were talking about, about the staring? British journalist John Ronson has written a book called Men Who Stare at Goats, which I highly recommend. He managed to investigate and actually locate Goat Lab in the US, which is the home of the Psychological Warfare Division of the US, did a whole lot of strange things from totally ordinary things to deceive the enemy into really bizarre stuff like trying to stare at goats to make them die. Staring at goats to make them die? That's right. So Uh, that's quite literally a death stare. It's literally the stare (laughs) of death. Oh, gosh. So how would they go about this? What what prompted them to try and research this? John Ronson got the, the first end of this story by talking to Yuri Geller in Britain. And Yuri Geller had been telling lots of people that he's, you know, doing all the spy work for the CIA and that the US military, you know, really need his talents as so a this psychic. Is, this is Yuri Geller, the same Yuri Geller that bends the spoons and, and the forks on, on UK TV for magic tricks. That's right. And every now and again, he likes to get the attention of the media and he makes all sorts of outlandish claims. And these are, you know, not very different from other claims he's made in the past. But what got John Ronson's attention was that when he went to ask him about it, he suddenly went silent. And in fact, he refused to answer any more questions on the subject, almost as if there really was some connection to the CIA. And it turns out, he made, well, when he went to chase the story, that, well, look, if you're the military and you have broken the codes of the enemy and you have good spies in place and you find out information that could save lives, well, you've got to find a way to use this information without giving away how you got it. So if you just use it to save lives, you, you know, evacuate a town that might be bombed or, or whatever you do, it gives away to the enemy that you know their secrets and they'll change the code and you lose your advantage. So one clever way to keep your advantage is to give an excuse for you to have the information that's not breaking the code. And if you happen to have a team of psychics, well, obviously they found out how it was done with their magic psychic powers and they might believe it themselves. Because after all... If there's any spies or leaks, you know, intelligence-wise, it would be better if they believed it themselves. So the military is using a a team of psychics? To cover the fact that they have real intelligence from breaking codes and infiltrating networks. Gosh, that sounds pretty complicated to me. (laughs) Espionage and psychological warfare is complicated. You have to outthink the enemy who's trying to outthink you. And you don't want them to change their codes if you manage to break them because it's a whole lot of work to break them in the first place. And you might give up your advantage. This is uh, this is news to me because um, I've actually I've met Yuri Geller. Yuri Geller actually came to my school in England because I went to school in the UK and he was doing tricks, bending spoons and stuff. And I remember his car, which he had parked outside of the boarding house, which was the main building at my school. And it was covered in forks and spoons and and cutlery that was bent in weird and wonderful ways it was really quite visually stunning visually artistic and i've always thought of him as a performer before i i had no idea that he had this connection to the military did he claim that he could really do the magic or did he claim to be a magician he claimed that he could really do it i think i think what he was doing was oh it was a while ago now but he was using his mind to be able to bend the particular cutlery that he was working with and he'd be feeling along it and and then he'd find the point at which his mind would be able to bend it and there, there have been i think contemporary theories that have gone along the lines that if you actually rub a um a piece of cutlery long enough you're heating it up no no that's just up, silly 
That's, oh, really? that's really, that's just silly. I went to a magician's convention years ago and every single table at that dinner had bent cutlery. It's a standard magic trick. All right, I'll defer to your wisdom <laughs> in this one. Well, the thing about Yuri Geller is that he used to, many decades ago when he, he got people to take him a bit more seriously, he was tested by people who were doing psychic tests around the US in various university labs, particularly the Stanford Laboratory. And they were interested in, funnily enough, remote viewing. Uh, the psychic ability to see things at a distance, which Yuri Geller claimed to have. And when they were filming him doing things, what they filmed him doing the spoon bending. What he didn't realise was this was back in the 70s when they were actually using film to do the filming. And so the film would run out and the cameraman would have to change the film and you know, put a new canister of film in and start filming again. And what do you know, the bend happened in the break between the canisters. Now, what Yuri Geller didn't realise is that although the camera didn't catch that, the cameraman did and told people he saw Yuri Geller bend the spoon with his hands. You know, mm. two hands bend when he thinks no one's looking. Um, it's not the only way to do it. Magicians use lots of different methods, but it's the easiest one. Oh gosh, now, secrets revealed. Secrets revealed. Um, and the remote viewing... What they found at Stanford, they didn't find Yuri Geller had any more remote viewing ability than anybody else, but the people at the lab believed that they had found a way for anybody to do remote viewing. And that's what they published. There are books out there telling you the Stanford University Laboratory's method of remote viewing, and you can learn it yourself. Of course, that's what they'd want you to believe if they didn't want to reveal that they'd broken the enemy's codes. Ah. So there you go, the military using psychic powers and goats. Thanks, Ian. Next up, we have Tilly Berlin and Evan Shapiro with Big Brother in your bed. Your bed might be the next thing that gets wired up. Oh. Yeah, I'm not talking a massage bed. No. I'm talking, it's sort of this weird marketing science hybrid. It's this bed that has all manner of sleep sensors, temperature controls, home theatre. Oh, really? And even internet, internet connectivity. Internet like we need our ever-increasing well, inboxes cool. I mean, chasing <laughs> us into bed. <laughs> cool. But maybe it's like those fridges, you know, that uh, have the internet that can, you know, have a shopping list. And when you're running low of milk, it orders it for you and stuff like that. So maybe when you, you've got an internet bed, if you've been in there alone too long... <laughs> <laughs> It'll order someone It'll for connect you. to RSVP.com. Yeah, automatically for you. Yeah. And make a match and then, you know. Seriously, you should contact these people, <laughs> see if you can get some slice of the action. Because at the moment, boringly, they've only got all sorts of tomfoolery-like yeah. uh, vibration sensors in the mattress. They pick up things like snoring, tossing and turning, breathing patterns. Yeah, well, when it picks up that you're snoring, the bed yeah. elevates seven degrees, apparently, to, to open your airway. So and then it returns you to your original... <laughs> to your original position when you're breathing easy again. For the first 30 days, it tracks your sleeping pattern. Could you imagine sleeping oh next to God. someone that snores? Yeah. Right, and you're having enough trouble trying to sleep because it's snoring, <laughs> but suddenly the bed starts moving. If it picks up that you've had unusual sleeping patterns, it alerts you to this in the morning <laughs> and, recommends, an email. Yeah, and recommends ways for you to improve your sleep, like a massage. Like, like a normal bed. <laughs> 
your sleeping patterns were disturbed. We By think you should get a normal bed. Yeah. Whatever happened to just going to bed to relax and go to sleep? There are a few things to do in bed yeah. that are a lot of fun. Yeah, a lot more fun than oh, reading a readout. <laughs> reading your email. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, guys. I think I'll be sleeping more lightly after that. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2SER.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I've got some interesting news myself, Ian. This is about DNA. Researchers at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine have actually discovered that a part of DNA which was previously thought of as junk DNA actually has a function that we might not have recognized previously. Basically, when you're thinking about DNA, the primary function we think of DNA having is making proteins. Now, proteins are basically uh, molecules which do all sorts of things in your cells to um, carry out their functions and keep them going. Proteins are what makes enzymes, which we use for chemical reactions to break things down. Protein, the structural scaffolding of cells, holding it together. And also proteins would go to your cell membranes at the surface and they'd let things in and let things out of the cell and respond to things like hormones or drugs to cause changes in the cells. And it's your DNA which ultimately has the blueprint for these proteins. First of all, it gets copied into something called mRNA before it's made into this into the proteins. And what they find is in an actual gene itself, it'll have bits which will eventually end up making the protein and then bits which don't, they get removed at some point. Um, and it was always thought that these bits that get removed before the final protein don't really have much of a function. But the researchers at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine have found that for particular nerve cells, if you actually take these bits of DNA out, they're called introns. If you take them out before the mRNA leaves the nucleus where the DNA is kept, then a certain type of protein, a channel protein at the end of the nerves doesn't get made properly, and which affects the way that the nerve functions. It affects the way that it signals and transfers messages on. So what they now believe is that these introns, which we previously thought didn't really have a purpose, are important in actually helping to transport the copied DNA out to the ends of the cells where they're actually made into this special transporter. So if I've understood correctly, these introns were parts of the DNA that we saw not being copied when the DNA was making proteins. And now we find they are being copied, and if they've left out of the copy, then the proteins don't get to where they have to be. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. They, um, they don't actually form part of the protein. They don't um, get translated into um, into the, the building blocks that make the protein, which is what usually happens to the RNA when it leaves the, the cell nucleus. But instead, they're vital for, um, for actually making sure that it goes to the right place, to where it's needed. Maybe less than 5% of the DNA that you have in your cells actually makes genes. The rest of it we think of as being junk DNA. Some of it is used as a site for other proteins to bind to help transcribe the genes so that they're actually made into the proteins that we use. But other bits have been hypothesized as being left over from earlier evolution. They might have been genes that were used earlier on that are not needed anymore. 
um, as we've evolved. Some bits have been perhaps left over from viral infections because when a virus infects you, it actually puts its DNA into yours so you copy it for it and help it reproduce. It's the directions. They're, they're, they're giving the directions to where it needs to go. On a different note, a slightly more light-hearted story. Seeing as Valentine's Day has just passed us, I thought we should have a story about love, or at least sex. And as it turns out, rather unsurprisingly, female rats tend to be more attracted to male rats that have had more success breeding than male rats that have not had so much success breeding. So I suppose you could say that female rats have been proven to be more attracted to the studs than to the geeks of the rat world. Um, this is a study that's been done by a team at McMaster University, and this is in Ontario, Canada. And what they did actually is they had two types of male rats. They had male rats which had mated with female rats up to a week before the experiment was begun in one little box, and male rats which hadn't mated with female rats for at least a week in another box. And when they introduced female rats into this environment, they tended to congregate with the male rats that had actually had some up to a week before. And what they found is that when they introduced female rats that had no sense of smell, they went in equal numbers to either male rats that had successfully mated previously or male rats that hadn't. So they believed that there is some sort of scent that is given off by the stud rats that makes them more attractive to the female rats. And I was just thinking, well, if that works in rats, I wonder if it works the same in humans. Well, it matches up with some of the psychology research I've been reading, where they showed that women who see men who are with other women are more attracted to the men than if the men are on their own. So it's, it's, they, they think what's going on is that um, if you're seen talking to an attractive woman at a party, for example, or at a club, then you can already tell that that attractive woman has pre-selected you. She's already gone through some tests to work out that she likes you, which means that this other woman watching from the sidelines sees that someone's already worked out that you're valuable. So you have some social proof ahead of time. I've also read some research where this seems to apply for humans, not just with scent, but with sight somehow, because women were able to tell from photos of men, they found them more attractive if the man had been talking to a pretty girl earlier, even if she wasn't in the photo. Oh, wow. So I suppose, I suppose that comes from the idea that if, if, you, can, if you can tell that someone has... Um, has been speaking to another woman or has been involved with another woman, you'd sort of have more of an indication that that person at least isn't crazy or that, um, <laughs> that they're more selectable, I suppose, as a partner, whereas whoever it is who's in the corner doesn't have that advantage. And it shows that the rat's main method of communication is scent, so that's how they communicate this information, whereas humans are more visual, and that's in, which is why women can tell from photos as well as from across a room. I wonder what you look for in the photo, how you can tell in the photo if, if a guy's been um, um, more successful with women than a guy that hasn't. It's more research to be done. She's got her ear to the walls and she's tapping the calls. If you got a secret boy, get about it. Cause she's a hotel detective, my little. 
And finally, here's Jackie Hayes with some more fantastic science. We have a special guest on Diffusion today, someone who has taken it upon himself to put together somewhat of a crazy trip through Queensland teaching science. Chris Lauf, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jackie Hayes. Um, now, tell me, what exactly are you doing? You're under this banner called Cycling Scientists. So, what is it? Okay, well, I'll explain it. Cycling Scientists consists of myself and uh, Deneen Jones, and what we're going to be doing is cycling for seven months, starting in Townsville and ending in the Torres Strait Islands. Um, what we're now, hang on a second. Can you actually cycle to the Torres Strait Islands? Have you looked at that little part of Australia's well, map? Well, look, we've, we've really tried to investigate uh, underwater cycles and um, all manner of other sort of things, but we've, we've kind of come to the conclusion that we're probably going to have to do that bit on a boat, oh, okay, which, right. which is, yeah, a little bit unfortunate, but um, we're going to cycle at least as much as we can get there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so what we're going to be doing is visiting schools along the way and also schools in Indigenous communities and uh, doing a program on energy, focusing on sustainable energy and sustainable transport. So you rock up to a school and, what, just everyone congregates in the hall and you teach them science. Is that how it works? <laughs> well, kind of. Basically, we cycle into a school and um, we put on an hour-long performance, uh, one of those highly interactive and fun performances. <laughs> oh, one of those ones, yes. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, the kids, the kids should love them. And, uh, yeah, it's, you know, get heaps of volunteers up on stage and do some, like, lots of crazy demonstrations and uh, hopefully chuck in some science in there about science of energy. Oh, so tell me, science of energy, what does that mean exactly? What will you be teaching these children? Okay, well, so well, the focus is on three things, um, starting off with chemical energy, uh, so energy of biological systems, basically energy that comes from the sun and is transferred into um, sugar and things that we can use. Uh, we then focus on um, mechanical energy, so things like bicycles, which is one of my favourite things, uh, gearing and how machines are used to transfer energy into different planes and different gear ratios. And then we finish off with uh, electrical energy. Um, hopefully what we're going to be doing is spending the entire seven months without plugging in any of our electrical equipment to power sockets, um, re-running the whole thing off uh, two solar panels that have been kindly donated to us by Brunton. Um, <laughs> good, good little uh, in there of the sponsor. Yep, thanks, thanks for that, Brunton. You guys are great. Um, yeah, so hopefully we're going to be demonstrating a bit of uh, sustainable energy right there on stage um, for the kids and teaching us, teaching them a little bit about electricity. So what happens if it keeps raining the way it has been and you don't get much sun? <laughs> yeah, well, the Brunton assures us that our solar panels will work even in the shade. <laughs> um, I've I've heard that the crocodiles uh, tend to stray inland a little bit, um, which is a bit of a concern if the rains keep on going, but uh, I think I'm ready to take, take on some crocs for the, for the sake of the trip. Yeah, seven months is a long time to be cycling around Queensland. So the idea is that you use only your, your biological energy and the energy from the sun to power your entire trip. Yeah, that's exactly right. Wow. So are you planning to be role models to these children, teaching them all about, you know, renewable resources and how to be sustainable and that sort of thing? Uh, I'm not sure about being a role model, but I think that there's definitely an aspect of um, encouraging kids to, to follow their imaginations. I mean, one of the things that we have got us most excited about this trip is the fact that this has really captured our imagination and has for a long time. We've been dreaming about doing it and then one day we suddenly decide to actually do it and... Um, you know, we're really encouraging kids to just do things that will follow their imaginations. And I think one of the special things about this trip is that it's on bicycles. And bicycles are something that kids have, um, not not really like cars. So it's, it's a real encouragement for kids to just get out there and do things that they're capable of doing. 
Yeah. Now, you said you're going into Indigenous communities in Queensland. And what what exactly is it like going into an Indigenous community? Have you done it before? Uh, yeah, I've been into uh, Indigenous communities in Central Australia. I've never been, I've never even really been to Queensland before, aside from very brief time spent in Brisbane. But uh, the Indigenous communities in Central Australia, while probably being quite different in many ways to the ones in on Cape York, um, probably also have some similarities. Um, and they were fantastic. I did a program there called the Shell Questacon Science Circus, um, which goes into Indigenous communities and does science workshops similar to what we're going to be doing. And what's it like actually going in there and teaching them science? I mean, it's probably quite removed from what usually happens in their day-to-day life. Well, yes and no. I mean, they, they maintain a, a, a fairly standard school schedule um, with the focus being mainly on literacy and numeracy, um, as is the case with most primary schools. A lot of primary school teachers lack a background in science um, and consequently feel um, often lacking in confidence in, in teaching science. Um, so programs like the Shell Quest on Science Circus and hopefully our program as well aims to kind of bridge that gap and um, bring in a little bit, bit of science to the kids and also aims to show teachers um, that science isn't as scary and that they don't have to know all the answers and that it's okay to just get in there and have a go and um, just, you know, how, how much fun kids can have doing science, really. Yeah, I, I bet they will have fun at your shows, Chris. Uh, Unfortunately, that's all we have time for now, but you can follow Chris and his crazy science trip through Queensland by going to his website, which is www.cyclingscientist.com. That's www.cyclingscientist.com. Thanks for coming in, Chris, and uh, good luck spreading the word of science in Queensland. Thanks a lot, Jackie. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild passionate praise, then send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program this week were Tilly Berlin, Evan Shapiro, Jackie Hayes, and Ian Wolfe. Diffusion has been produced by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Patrick Ruby. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion.